I'm Sam Tracy. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. Thanks for tuning in to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs, including policy, science, culture, and so much more. This show is produced by TWID Media, whose members are all alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome nonprofit working to end the war on drugs. We also produce a weekly email newsletter and have some other exciting projects on the way. You can check them all out on our website, thisweekindrugs.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, where we talk about some of the week's biggest stories about drugs and drug policy. But before we dive into this week's stories, we want to say a big thank you to our sponsor, which this week is listeners like you. If you want to head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash twid you can see an example of all the cool projects that we have going on and all of the rewards that we give to people who help us keep the show running Rochelle you want to kick things off Definitely, Sarah. So for our first story this week, um, it's one out of Canada and it's pretty exciting. So a prominent liberal member of parliament hinted this week that criminal records for marijuana possession might be completely expunged for Canadians who were convicted prior to legalization. So MP Bill Blair, um, who you may remember as a former police commissioner for Toronto, as well as the former head of the task force to study legalization for Canada, said that um, the lifelong consequences of marijuana possession, for which, which for Canadians includes being banned from entering the United States, uh, period, was, quote, out of proportion with the offense that we were trying to control, end quote. Wow, that, that is exciting. You know, I feel like we've been talking about updates from Canada about legalization for a while now, and this is something that people have definitely been asking questions about because it hasn't really been addressed before and in the same way that it's been an issue in various states um, and ballot initiatives here in the U.S. when we're legalizing. um, You know, it's a big, it's a big issue of concern because a lot of the racial disparities and other disparities exist uh, everywhere. Certainly. And I don't know if we see quite the same racial disparities as we do um, up in Canada as in the United States for historic reasons, but um, it, the, those types of criminal records do continue to be an obstacle for employment, education, um, different types of opportunities for Canadians who have those records. So um, the estimate for so- how many people that would affect is at least half a million Canadians who have been convicted of a pot possession. Um, and the bill that um, would implement legalization Um, In Canada, C-45 does not directly address um, this question. So so this isn't a proposal that's like uh, concrete yet. You know, this is just something that um, MP Bill Blair has proposed. Um, But it's great to see that the conversation is moving in this direction um, and that it's something that is at least being considered. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I have... Two main questions that I hope you can answer as our resident Canadian. Uh-huh. Um, since the bill doesn't address it directly, is this something that provinces could potentially address on 
like an individual basis? Yeah. So I'm, I don't know, um, Canadian law that well or at all, but I do know that in Canada, um, in contrast to the United States, uh, criminal law is set at the federal level as opposed to province by province, like it here is here in the United States, uh, done at the state level. Um, so that to me indicates that, um, that it's less likely, but provinces probably could pass things, um, in their own, um, like labor laws or employment laws that say, oh, you can't ask these questions, you know, on an employment application. So like ban the box type, uh, protections. So maybe not all the way up to expungement, but some, um, mitigating steps. That's a great question. <laughs> that makes sense. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I guess the other one, you know, when we talk about retroactive um, expungement and things like that, was there any, um, did Bill Blair address at all, like the amount, like what kind of um, possession? Yeah. Quantities. Yeah. So he definitely said possession and not all marijuana related uh, charges. So we're not looking at things that would be like distribution quantity or trafficking or manufacturing. Um, I think what he's really envisioning is personal possession here. That makes sense. That's still, you know, that's, that's better than nothing. It is. Um, and just one final quote for kind of what talking points we're hearing out of Canada and maybe something that our, our own, you know, law enforcement um, can consider. You know, this is a former... Uh, police commissioner. So this is definitely someone who has seen the criminal uh, law enforcement side of the issue. And his opinion um, on these criminal charges or people or Canadians with these former criminal charges is that they are, quote, fine, upstanding, honest, decent citizens. And yet that criminal record has an impact on the quality of their life and on their opportunities, end quote. So I'd love to see the conversation move in that direction down here in the United States as well. Um, what's our next story, Sarah? So this one is not quite as positive. Uh, it's coming to us from Florida, and it's about methadone clinics. Uh, so in October, Florida's Department of Children and Families awarded 49 methadone clinic licenses on a first-come, first-served basis. And we'll link to a couple articles, but there were actually... Uh, it's extremely, it was extremely controversial for reasons we will get into, but there were people who were camping mm -hmm. out to try and get these licenses since it was first come, first serve. And like literally physically camping outside yes. the department agency waiting for it to open so that they could be like the first in line to put in their application? Yes. Okay. So first come, first serve. And this process resulted in just five companies receiving all 49 licenses. Oh, wow. So I think, uh, obviously and understandably, people were pretty upset. And so three providers who didn't receive licenses decided to challenge the process. And a judge ended up determining that the process was unfair. So now what's happening is the state has to find another way to issue the licenses. And, you know, that's understandable. The process was flawed and they want to do this as fairly as possible. But people in rural areas, there are some mm -hmm. counties in the state that don't have any treatment providers, um, are really sort of feeling 
feeling the effects of they this. They need the they need the medicine. Exactly. There are people. Right? Yeah, there are people whose nearest clinic is over an hour away. Um, you know, it's just it's not. It's just not realistic. Um. So this reminds me a lot of what we're seeing in certain medical marijuana states where the initial licensing process is flawed either for, um, you know, not taking into account equity or racial diversity, stuff like that, or for just blatant corruption, like the first round of Massachusetts applications. Um, And, you know, it's hard to balance the need for corrective steps versus the, like, whether it's humane to keep patients waiting even longer, you know? Absolutely. That's a difficult question. It is, and I don't know that there's a, um, you know, real right or wrong answer, aside from sort of the obvious it was wrong for five companies to receive all 49 licenses. Um, yeah, I mean, when I first heard about that, too, I was, like, really morally outraged because it sounded like, um, you know, some backdoor scheming, you know, friends of, you know, regulators who might have had closer connections, and that's why they got all of those licenses. But now that I come to think of it, if it's first come, first serve, they probably just had, like, five guys sitting in line, right? I mean, that seems like the most likely possibility. Mm-hmm. But, it, I mean, it does make you wonder who in within the department decided that this was... Was going to be the process? Yeah. Like, who has the resources to sit around all day waiting in line or, like, to pay someone to sit in line all day? Or what time they decided to open the applications for, you know, or who found out first so that they'd be the first in line? I mean, all of those questions are fair questions, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. You know, it's... A, it's it's an interesting scenario, I think. Like you were saying, it's they're finding the balance um, is probably the biggest issue, and I don't, you know, I don't know what the you're comparing this to medical marijuana. So, what would like a lottery system be the best option here? Do you think it could be? Um, it's difficult because we often talk about merit-based applications, but merit-based applications can also um, are also biased towards people with more resources, you know? So I, I, I have heard strong arguments in favor of a lottery type system or like no caps, you know, and, um, Mm -hmm. um, allowing everyone who can provide these services, meeting a minimum requirement for safety, security, um, et cetera, uh, that they should qualify to have them, you know? Absolutely. So let's move on to our next story. Okay. Um, This next one is really sad also. Um, So I'm really glad you're going to finish on a positive one later on in this segment. So this next story does involve an involuntary strip search um, in in public view. So if that type of content would make you uncomfortable or you don't want to hear about it, just skip on to the next story, which, um, as I mentioned, is going to be a happier one. So this happened in the middle of a Miami neighborhood uh, called Wynwood Arts District. 
In the middle of broad daylight, four police officers, and that included two men and two women, held down a woman on the sidewalk, spread her legs apart, pulled down her pants, and reached into her underwear to retrieve three small bags of cocaine. So they did find um, drugs pursuant to this strip search. Um, you know, this incident has been under investigation by the Internal Affairs Department. Um, it's pretty much undisputed that this was a violation of both Florida law, which requires the search to have been conducted by a person of the same gender. So because it was a woman, it should have been only by a woman and not having those two uh, male officers present holding the woman down. And as well, um, as well as out of sight of anyone not involved in the search. So this was in plain sight of anyone who could see the sidewalk. That includes anyone driving by, people on the sidewalk, um, or inside their houses. I'm not sure what this district looks like, but it could have been people um, outside businesses, etc., etc. Um, this was also a violation of Miami Police Department's own protocol, which would have required a supervising officer to sign off on the strip search first and also have forbidden male officers from being involved. Wow. That is a lot to take in. Um, and somehow, you know, fits... Uh, a pattern of things that we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, it's not necessarily the first time. Um, it's certainly not the first time that we've seen in the news um, an involuntary strip search, uh, including of, or maybe particularly of women, um, related to the drug war. Um, I think this story surprised me a little bit. I don't know a lot about Miami, but it just seemed like it was, you know, a nicer, more developed neighborhood. Um, they did they did say that they saw her leaving um, a well-known or a public housing development the officer said was known for narcotics dealing, and that's why they arrested her in the first place. Um... But it's just so violative, you know? It's just so... It's humiliating. It's, um... Um... Like, you're so physically vulnerable. It's terrifying. Um, and it was so unnecessary. Because where would she have got... Where would she have put it if she was already in handcuffs? She was in handcuffs for an hour, by the way, before they decided to do this. So, um... It just seems like it was completely unnecessary like they could have taken her into the car um and f and got taken her to jail to do that um or like had a female officer conduct the search inside a car at least you know <clears throat> you know and the other another question that i feel like needs to be asked is how much cocaine could you could there have even been i mean i don't i right it doesn't seem right. it's like, like even if it was like three bags that's like a personal possession amount you know just it's yeah not worth it i guess is the right uh, the larger point right um for the indignity and inhumanity of treating someone like that um so um as i mentioned this has been referred to the agency's internal affairs department they cleared the officers of any wrongdoing surprise surprise ruling that um, the officer who initiated the search, the actual search, felt, uh, quote, felt she needed to retrieve the narcotics before transporting Miss Matute because if not, Miss Matute would tamper and destroy the narcotics. 
Um, this despite her having been in handcuffs and like I, I don't know. Yeah, there's always uh, there's always a reason. There's always a story. Yeah, uh, tell us some better news, Sarah. I can do that. Uh, yes. So last week, after a very long wait, uh, New York City Mayor Bill De Blasio announced his plans to support an initiative that would bring four overdose prevention centers or safe injection sites to New York City. So this this decision That's so exciting. It is. And this decision is the result of a report that was commissioned in 2016 by the city council. So when we say a long time coming, it's been, you know, a year and a half, uh, maybe two years of waiting for this report and waiting to find out what some of the next steps were. Um, and I think most of our listeners know that the opioid crisis has not exactly gotten hasn't really improved uh, over the last two years. Um, and so this is exciting uh, to have New York City Mayor come out so publicly in support of this. This is a big one. I really feel like, um, you know, it's kind of funny because we keep seeing different cities saying they're the, they're going to be the first ones. Um, they're going to be the first ones to have safe injection facilities now. Like, for a while, we thought it was going to be San Francisco cause they, or Seattle because they had approved two pilot facilities. And then all of a sudden, Philadelphia um, came out with, um, you know, the DA, what's his name, Larry Krasner, on board. And they were, like, all steam ahead, and they were going to be the first city. And now New York is like, no, we're going to be the first city um, so it's kind of nice that the conversation has shifted so dramatically in that direction. Absolutely. Um, and this New York Times article that we'll link to in the post uh, in our show notes does say that San Francisco is likely on track to be the first city to open their site um, because they're planning to open two centers late summer or fall of this year. Oh, okay. Awesome. But back to New York. Um so this does have the support of Mayor de Blasio. Um, we don't know where Governor Cuomo stands at this point. Um, you know, it remains to be seen if he will be pushed further left um, to get on, and get on board with these, uh, as they're calling them, overdose prevention centers. Um, That's awesome. In the That's city. what we call them in Maryland also, and I think it's like the best name for them. Absolutely. So some of the interesting details, I guess, um, there would be six to 12 months of community outreach in the neighborhoods where the sites would be opening uh, before they would actually open. So there'd be, you know, a real um, strong effort to get community support and buy-in from stakeholders and the neighborhood, um, which is incredibly Mm -hmm. important because we see so much uh, nimbyism with and NIMBY stands for not in my back- backyard, which means that wealthier or more politically connected communities will push out unwanted facilities or, un- or undesir- like seemingly undesirable facilities like this into um, lower income, less politically connected neighborhoods, right, where they concentrate. Even though facilities are like this um, are really beneficial to communities, they're seen as undesirable. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome. I just wanted to, you know, explain in case some people didn't know what NIMBYism was. So another, one other interesting thing about the sites, uh, they would be financed and operated by nonprofits. 
and potentially would be located in sort of the same area and may potentially the same facility as existing needle exchange sites, which, you know, is uh, pretty intuitive and makes a lot of sense, I think. It does. It's just adding on services to what needle exchanges are providing. Exactly. And, you know, there are a lot of... Um, there's this, a lot of uh, overlap in the services and the mission and the overall... Um... The demographic they're serving. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. Join them at patreon.com slash twit. If you've listened to This Week in Drugs before, you know that we have a 30-second commercial each week, which helps cover the cost of producing the show. But that's not our biggest source of funding. The big majority of our money comes from listeners like you, who sign up to support our work with a small monthly contribution. At patreon.com twid, you can get some great perks for as little as $1 a month. This money helps us pay our bills, like web hosting and audio production software, so that we can keep creating great content for you to listen to each week. Again, that's patreon.com slash twid. We appreciate your support. So now it's time for our quick hit headlines. And the first headline this week um, is in Texas. In the hotly contested Senate race between incumbent Ted Cruz and Democratic nominee Beto O'Rourke, not just marijuana legalization, but the decriminalization of all drugs has now become a major campaign topic. Last week, Delaware Delaware Senate Minority Whip introduced legislation that would expunge convictions for using or possessing under one ounce of marijuana if the offense occurred before decriminalization took effect. More than a quarter of the General Assembly has already signed on to co-sponsor the bill. That is exciting. Um, Over in Zimbabwe, they have just legalized growing marijuana for medicinal and research purposes. Zimbabwe is the second African... African country to have done so, after Lesotho, which I just learned of, is a tiny country inside South Africa. Yay. That is exciting. So mine, my next one is not as exciting, but in Massachusetts, the Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Use, and Recovery approved a bill which allows doctors to hold individuals for up to three days if their addiction is deemed dangerous. A bill in the California... Uh, Senate. Um, It's going on third reader and it would allow marijuana delivery to all of California. Um, As you probably know, um, different jurisdictions in California are allowed to prohibit the sales or production of um, marijuana within their borders. So this bill would allow um, companies to deliver to those places um, if you can't buy it in stores that are licensed there. Um, so if you support delivery um, of marijuana in California, which you should, um, you can weigh in as a California resident. We're going to put up um, a link to that bill online and make sure to call your state senator and tell them to vote yes on SB1302. Awesome. Thank you. So my event is later this week, uh, Friday, May 11th, and it's taking place in Binghamton, New York, uh, actually on Binghamton University's campus. And it's hosted by the Drug Policy Alliance and a handful of other uh, excellent organizations. The event is titled Drug Use in Upstate New York, Strategies for Change and Reducing the Harms. 
So might uh, be able to infer that it's focusing on opioids and how they have impacted communities all across New York. So definitely check that out. We will link to it on our website. It's an all day event from nine to 5.30. Uh, Jam packed with an incredible lineup of speakers and harm reduction experts. So make sure to check it out. And that's all for this week's segment of weekly news and forecasts. Um, as always, this would not be possible without the love and support of our sponsors. And this week, that's listeners like you. Um, so if you want to also help put this um, podcast together, head on over to patreon.com slash twid, uh, where you can make a monthly pledge and help us keep this shit afloat. Thanks again for listening to season five of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Sarah Merrigan, and produced by Chris Harris. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that new episodes will be sent straight to you. If you really liked this episode, you can help other people discover us by writing a quick review in iTunes or wherever you're listening. And if you absolutely love this episode and want to support our work, you can make a one-time contribution using PayPal, become a monthly supporter on Patreon, or even sponsor an episode. For links to those and to learn more about our other projects, head on over to thisweekindrugs.org.